0: Have you ever raced this race? No, never no. have.
1: I, I don't. I never did do Ironman. No, never me did either. do Ironman. <laughs> I, I, I was much. I thought I, I was much better at like two-hour races. I did lots of lumpy distances. Occasionally, I do have half Ironman. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm not into five and six-hour bike rides. And yeah. Three-hour runs. Yeah, and
0: you and really I, have to enjoy it to. Do I that. enjoy
1: short, intense workouts, like intervals, and you know, no repeats, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I never did do it.
0: This is Suzanne Atkinson with Try to Listen, the podcast for curious triathletes. Each episode features an interview with an athlete, coach, or scientist whose passion lies in triathlon. It's my job to uncover their story. Today's podcast goes back to the Kona World Championships in 2014. I had the opportunity to sit down with Joe Friel and recorded this interview, which has never been released. It's such a great conversation with all kinds of tidbits and interesting information about Joe, his research into his books, as well as training ideas that I thought it was important enough to get out to you guys. I've enjoyed listening to our interview several times while putting together this episode and trying to decide what's to include, Um, and it turns out that every single part of the interview is still current and valuable information. In this interview, I asked Joe about the method that he uses for research and how he keeps track of all of his information. We talk about updates to the training Bible, which is probably his most well-known piece of work. Um, And we talk about training in older athletes um, as relates to his book, which was uh, in editing at that time called Fast After 50. I hope you enjoy listening to this and please listen carefully as there is a lot of information about interval training for athletes of all different abilities and distances. And I think you'll just enjoy hearing some of Joe's stories. Enjoy. Hi there, this is Suzanne Atkinson. And today I'm sitting near the beach in Kona with Joe Friel. Thanks for joining me today, Joe.
1: Hi, Suzanne. Glad to be
2: here. A lot of fun.
0: Um, so, Joe, this is the first time that I've been here for the actual Ironman race, and uh, just a minute ago you were telling me about the first experience you had coming out to watch the race. Could you just um, tell me what you were expecting uh, when you came to, to see the race and what your actual experience was as an as a observer? Sure.
1: Yeah, my first year was 1989, uh, which was, I, I still think, probably the best Ironman ever ever held in Kona, probably the best Ironman of all time, regardless of the location. It was Mark Allen and Dave Scott going shoulder-to-shoulder the entire race. And uh, I'm I'm following the race as best I can on the radio because there was no Internet in those days to to keep track of athletes. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the radio was kind of giving us sketchy information, but I knew they came off the bike together, and I was about, uh, at the time, probably about two-and-a-half miles, three miles into the run uh, leg watching the race. And I could see them coming down... Elite uh, Drive, running uh, north toward me, and I figured out they were doing roughly around six-minute pace,
2: mm-hmm.
1: with 90 degrees temperature Fahrenheit and, and 90% humidity roughly, and I'm standing there sweating, just drenched with sweat, just watching, and those guys are going by me at six-minute pace,
2: uh-huh.
1: and then we continued to watch the race throughout, going from place to place, and uh, uh, just a fantastic race, but for me it was an eye-opener because I'd been following Ironman for. Many years, uh, but I never got a chance to come over until that year. So, mm-hmm. and since then, I've been coming back frequently. I haven't made every year, but mm-hmm. I've made most of the years since 1989. Yeah. Just, just to watch the thing. It's, a, it's a heck of an experience.
0: Yeah. Um, what other uh, race experiences as a coach compare to this? I mean, it's kind of a loaded question, but you do an awful lot of, um, of stuff as far as coaching different types of athletes, or at least you have in the past. Um, aside from the obvious that this is the World Championships, is there anything else about this that really stands out to you as being unique or different that keeps bringing you back?
1: Yeah, this, this, is, uh, this race has a, uh, has a lot of things going for it. Num- number one, I think, is history.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, there aren't too many races. Th- this is a young sport. Triathlon is a young sport. And so this race goes back right back to the origins of the sport. It's kind of like well, I've been to the Tour de France many times also, and I love going to it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's the same sort of thing. You can think this race goes back to like 1903 or four, right around. There. I forgot exact date. I think I think uh, So, you know, it's got it's got history, which is always gives something a great deal of more uh, depth yeah. when it's been around for a long time. And so. I kind of equate this with cycling, which is the other sport I'm involved with as a coach. Uh, I, I equate it with the, with the Tour de France. And so it's, it's the same type event. Whoever wins this event is one of the best, male or female, is one of the best endurance athletes in the world. And you can count on it. Same as same as Tour de France. Whoever wins that race is one of the best Iron best cyclists, <laughs> cyclists in the world. Mm-hmm. And so it's... Uh, it's fun just to be there to see it happen. Yeah. All right.
2: Who has a kiss that that will never
1: never be taken away from the from this sort of race. Yeah. So and that, that's the biggest thing. Plus the fact that the athletes when they show up for this race or the Tour de France, those types of races, are highly motivated. Uh, you know they've come to a, a, a peak of readiness for this race. And so you're in for a real treat, getting mm-hmm. to see athletes who are performing at their highest level uh, of the entire season. So that's always fun, from a coach's perspective, to then be able to talk with some of these athletes at the elite level and find out how they came into peak form for for this race, Mm -hmm. for me, is is a great deal of fun. I got to do that uh, two years ago. I missed last year, 2013 I missed, but 2012 I was here, In the morning after the race I got to interview uh, Pete Jacobs, Uh who won the men's category that year and Talked about his training. We had his we had his files up from his Training peaks files. Uh-huh. And we were reviewing those files and and seeing how he raced the race, and then taking to the race and talking about how you prepared for that kind of a race. Yeah, and what his training had been like, and he had trained what I would call perfectly. He did everything exactly as you should do. And so that's the sort of experience you have when you come to this when you come to Ironman.
0: Yeah. Now um, that. Specific example, does Pete Jacobs have a coach, or is he self-coached, or was he following one of your models? No, he
1: was self-coached, or at least at the time. I'm not sure about now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I saw him last night, but I didn't get a chance to talk to him. And uh, uh, But he, he, he was doing things extremely well. I mean, he was, he was on, he's on top of understanding how to use a power meter, for example, Yeah. which so many athletes aren't. We we uh, That year, we got the power meters right after the athletes finished the race. We had 13 pro uh, power meters from the race, mm-hmm. and we were allowed, they gave us permission to download the data, All
0: right. and of the
1: 13, we discovered eight of them had had what we call FTP, the functional threshold power was incorrect. and so their was data, set
0: incorrectly, yeah, you it mean? was set
1: incorrectly, so their, a while their data was totally meaningless. Interesting. And that's eight out of 13 pro athletes, so yeah. power is still being learned by everybody, including huh. the pros. Uh, Pete had his nailed down exactly. Yeah. This was... A, not only was the power where it should be in terms of like what we know about FTP, but also he had trained to using his power meter the right way, mm-hmm. which is very difficult to find somebody who does who does that also who trains the way you need to train mm-hmm. to get ready for an Ironman distance race. Yeah, uh, and he had done all that stuff. So he he was he he's very knowledgeable. I don't know his background, but he if I he. If he was a coach, I'd spend a lot of time talking to him, finding out how he got to that point. Yeah, uh, because I suspect there'd be some exercise physiology background there, and and a lot of study going on to be able to to nail things down as closely as he did.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So he did he did a perfect perfect race.
0: That's uh, thanks for sharing that story. Um, you know, as a coach, I, my first exposure to the uh, the realm of triathlon coaching was through your books and I think that I'm not unique. I've probably every triathlon coach, if they haven't read your books, they're at least familiar with your books. Um, so you certainly have had a big, big influence on the uh, the state of coaching in triathlon. So thank you for that. <laughs>
2: thank
1: you. I appreciate it. It's, it's it's always fun for me to talk to an athlete. The triathlete's training bible came out about 1998, I think it was. Mm-hmm. So it's been around now for 16 years or so. Mm-hmm. And uh, and occasionally I'll talk to an athlete who that was their introduction to training as a, as a teenager.
2: Yeah. It
1: was my book. It was the first thing they ever learned about how to train. So that, that's been uh, very rewarding to talk to athletes like that.
2: Yeah.
0: And as I was reading your book, um, you know, when I started coaching for triathlon, I had already um, finished medical school and finished my residency, and I was a practicing ER physician. And uh, I was training, um, helping teach the fitness school for um, mountaineering and rock climbing uh, for a group in Pittsburgh and very passionate about that. And um, what I discovered when I started doing triathlons is that, you know, in, mountaineering is an endurance event. You know, it's multi-day, one week, two weeks, um, expeditions where it's all about um, the endurance aspect of it. And then the technical skills particular to your route. So when I got exposed to triathlon, um, I realized it's it's very similar physiology, and so I I just sort of bridged my experience from mountaineering to triathlon. Read all of your books. I'd read the cycling bible, the triathlete's bible, and the mountain biker's bible. And there was a lot of similarity, but there's just enough different that made it very valuable to me. And what I was most impressed about um, was not just the depth of your knowledge, but it was very clear your passion for um, ongoing education. It was clear that you had read a lot. Every single chapter has 20 to 30 references at the end of it. Um, And I think that I just heard this last week is that you are in the practice of just reading on a daily basis, studies and ongoing education for for coaching. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I've been doing that uh, since just after my, my graduate program I did my master's in exercise science back in uh, the 1970s which there wasn't much exercise science in the 1970s it was kind of like you learned how to how to prevent your athletes from getting athletes foot in, uh. in the locker room sort of thing uh-huh. <laughs> that was about as far as it went and, but then in the 80s early 80s began to change and, and a lot more research started appearing we didn't have access to the internet to be able to chase down things it was, yeah. it was a, well, largely a matter of of uh, magazines and uh, newsletters and such that I began to follow it and almost practically every day since the early 1980s I start the day by reading uh, uh, abstracts research abstracts just to find if there's anything going on out there that I want to know more about mm-hmm. and I'll find a research study that I like and then I'll dig around like I can find the research study you know, so I can go into details on it and I started out back in the early '80s, putting, making up a three-by-five card every time I found a, a study I thought was I could use in my coaching or training, my personal training.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I started collecting these three-by-five cards. And then when the internet came along, or the computers <laughs> came along, I was way too deep into hundreds and hundreds oh, of, wow. of three-by-five cards. So this day, I still have I've got boxes of three-by-five <laughs> cards, all categorized. And my wife has been, uh, over the last two years, has been going through and ent- entering them all into the... Does she
0: want to get rid of them? No, no. Or she's cataloging she's, she's, them?
1: She's just afraid. No, I, she knows it. So much of what I write. Every time I write a book, I, pull, I go back to those cards mm-hmm. and I pull them out and I, I categorize them by chapters or topics or whatever. So they kind of refresh my memory and, and help me to write the chapters that I'm writing. And so she realized if we had a fire or something, mm. and all those were lost,
2: lost. I'd, I'd
1: be up the creek trying to uh, do any writing. Yeah. So consequently, she's got it all backed up and uh, keeps, keeps it current by going back and, and uh, updating everything. As I finish off a card, she enters it, so it's always, always so new. So you're still analog,
0: <laughs> and she's digital? She's digital, <laughs> yeah. Is she just keeping them in a Word document, or does she have a database,
1: or? She's got them in an Excel file. Okay. And they're all they're all categorized by topic within uh-huh. it, within that, so I, we can search it very easily and find things. That's great. But I still I still <laughs> I still go back to the analog system and still prefer to find them in the box because I know exactly where they are in the box. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: And it's easier for me than trying to search through the just to do a run a search on the on the Excel file. Right. Uh, but yeah. nevertheless, it yeah. works both ways. So. But
0: it's really yeah. nice to hear how you go about doing your personal research. Um, one of the things that I've always been curious about, you know, the Training Bible, you said the first edition was published in 1998. Yeah. All right. And, you know, you're reading every single day, and science changes very quickly. And um, how many editions of the Training Bible are there now? How many updates?
1: Uh, Triathletes Training Bible, I believe, is on the fourth edition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and quite honestly, thinking about Starting the book from scratch and just re- writing an entirely new book. I'll buy it. <laughs> going through four editions, it's kind of like I keep patching it up, putting what do you want to call putting band-aids on it, or yeah. fixing things that are different now. The world has changed in 16 years. Yeah. So I'm I'm actually it's been in the back of my head that I need just to start it all over again and write an entirely new book. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: what are some of the big differences that you've seen from edition to edition? What's changed?
1: Well, there's a lot more stuff now on, on uh, for example, high-intensity training and the benefits for even for an Ironman distance race. Uh, in, in the last ten years or so, there's just in that category, there's been a tremendous amount of research in what's called polarized training, which is training to the extremes, training very hard or training very easy, but avoiding what's in between. Mm-hmm. That's an idea which has been around for a long time. But it was never supported by research before. It was just kind of like what coaches saw, how the coaches saw the world. Now the research has been coming out, which documents the advantages of doing that, and that has a lot to do with when it comes to Ironman distance races with periodization, which then takes us to the topic of periodization. How do we how do we rethink periodization to bring in a polarized concept? Because you you, you can't train uh, an Ironman triathlete the same way you train a guy somebody who's doing bicycle races crits, criterions. Yeah. Uh and so we have gotta change the way we do polarized training and it's a, it's a it's a periodization change is what it is. And so over the years I thought my way through how to how to modify periodization. So that then takes us to the chapter on periodization, how to modify, how to modify that. Mm-hmm. Where there's been a lot of changes also in the yeah. last several years, new concepts about how to periodize. I don't explain one way of periodizing in the book.
2: Yeah. It's the classic way, the
1: linear way. And now there have been all these other Techniques which were in the early stages back when I wrote the book, that are now fairly well accepted and have lots of more research about them, not a tremendous amount, mm-hmm. but more, so that needs to be rethought.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Nutrition uh, has been going through tremendous changes over the last 16 years, uh, and that needs to be discussed, because now there's more avenues for the athlete to follow a nutrition uh, plan, if you will.
0: Can you describe that when you say yeah. a lot of avenues?
1: Yeah, the two primary ones, which then lead to offshoots, one was, which is what I wrote about in the early, uh, in the first book, was basically eating a high-carbohydrate diet, mm-hmm. but I put a new twist on it back then, uh, which was the paleo version of a high-carbohydrate diet, which, which brings the person to more, more le- less highly processed foods, eating mm-hmm. more fruits, vegetables, animal protein, and so forth. Those sort of things is what I discussed in the original book, which is still valid, uh, but now, for example, there's a lot of athletes, especially in Ironman distance, who are starting to move toward high-fat versions of the Paleo diet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there are athletes who are who are who are doing a merger or marriage of the two, if you will. They're eating uh, basically a high-fat Paleo-type diet, but in the last few days before the race, they modify their diet, and on race day, they modify their diet. So there's more carbohydrate. Mm-hmm. And so it's becoming more complex. There's just more ways of doing it. Yeah. And and the, the research is still lacking on all of this, uh, but there's a growing body of research which shows there may be benefits to eating more, more fat in your diet. And the old concepts we had had about that causing, therefore, more cholesterol, and your total cholesterol rises, and, and having more uh, low-density lipoproteins in your diet or in your body means... Uh, you know, if you have a lot of LDL, you're going to die of heart disease. By God, we all know that. Everybody knows that. And now, I'm starting to share that's really not the case. and so now, lots of research showing there's no relationship between the amount of cholesterol, more, amount of fat in your diet, and how much cholesterol you have. No significant net difference between those two, and that there's no longevity issues, there's no heart disease issues. So all this is being rethought right now, and the world is just changing mm-hmm. in, in lots and lots and lots of ways. Yeah. And I. And I need to explain that in the book because I'm afraid uh, the book has still got a lot of 1980s ways of seeing the world about it.
0: Yeah. It sounds like what you're describing is that the original book has a structure to it, and you've been able to change it, but as you learn more and more, you just need to sort of give it a whole new framework.
1: Yeah, exactly. It just needs to show there are, there are different avenues. Yeah. I'm and not saying there's any... I'm not I'm going to say there is a right way mm-hmm. because when it comes to nutrition because there isn't a the right way. Same with periodization. There's not a right way when it comes to periodization. <laughs> There are multiple ways, mm-hmm. and I want to explain all these ways now, so athletes have options when they're thinking about how they want to
2: train.
0: Is, is this something that you think about a lot? Is how to convey you, your knowledge and your research to athletes. You just do you feel like it just needs to come out of you, or how do you? Yeah, that? I think
1: I've got things I want to say yet,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, and quite honestly, I don't I don't study this stuff so I can write a book. Mm-hmm. Or talk to anybody or explain to anybody. I write it because I'm curious. I want yeah. to, I'm a, I want to understand what's going on, and that's always been the starting point for this whole thing. It's just my own curiosity, and that, that's how it all started back in you know, about 1980 or so, when I used to have a running store. And athletes would come into my running store, and they would ask. They knew I had a masters in science, exercise science, so they wanted to ask questions about how to train for a 10k or marathon or later on a triathlon or later or even at the same time about a, a bike race or whatever. And so it, I always tried to figure those things out so I could do it myself. That's mm-hmm. why I did it. I wanted to do an, <laughs> I wanted to do a triathlon. I wanted to do a bike race. I wanted to do a running race. Yeah. So I wanted to understand how I could train for it better. And so it's always it's never been about trying to give information to people. It's always been about me trying to become a better athlete. Yeah. And it just happened that I became a coach because of that. Yeah.
0: I think that's great. A a common thread that I see in the people who are excelling in their arena, whatever it is, whether they're an athlete or a physician or an author or a coach, is that just this this sense of constant curiosity, uh, sense of always wanting to improve, um, not being afraid to ask questions, not being afraid to be wrong once in a while. (laughs) (laughs) Or often. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, so you're working on a new book. Um, tell us about that.
1: Sure. Uh, the book is called "Fast After 50, which gives you not gives away what the, the book is about right away. Uh, but it all started because oh my, it in a few years. No, yeah, there you go. <laughs> a few
2: years still.
1: It all started because uh, two years ago I was 60, I, I realized I was going to turn seventy within two years. I was sixty-eight at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I knew enough about aging that I knew that that had some implications associated with it. There's some research on aging showing that athletes, when they hit around their 70th birthday, things start going south at a more rapid rate than they did in the previous decade of life and the decade before that and so forth. In other words, there's a curve that's going on, Mm -hmm. which accelerates in the last, beyond around age 70. And I always had this in the back of my mind for when I was around 68 or 69. So finally, at age 69, summer of 69, I decided I was going to give myself a present. I was going to go back and read as much research as I could about that phenomenon to see what I could learn,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: which then took me to this entire subject of aging, which I knew something about, but I hadn't really researched it. And so I started going back. With all my cards to begin with, and then going up to the more recent research and searching things and finding what's available. So you
0: went through old research to uncover new information?
1: Yeah, I started out with the old research just to see what things were the <laughs> trends back whenever I first started writing about this topic or making up cards on it. Mm-hmm. To see what the trends were back then, and that you know, then led into, with that, what, is that trend still there today? Are they still saying the same things now yeah. that they said then? And so the whole thing began to mushroom, and so I, <laughs> starting in summer of, about June of six, of uh, two, of uh, last year, 2013, I started a, a blog series on, uh, on aging.
0: Yeah, I... I've read some of those, and I really like the, um, you know, just sort of, again, this ongoing expression of what you're discovering, what you're learning, and sharing this information. It's not like you're trying to hoard it or keep it a secret from anyone. No,
1: there are no secrets. <laughs> so I uh, so I started writing about this stuff, as you mentioned, just uh, to share it with people. And uh, that then led to, why don't I, I've I got enough now to understand a lot more about this, and there's nothing out there. There's no other book that's covering this topic like I want to cover it. Mm-hmm. There are other books on aging. Most of the other books are... What I call cheerleader books. Hmm. You can do it, sort of books, you know. Yeah. I don't care what your age is, you can do it. All you have to do is just go out and do it, you know. And just, all this is, is, is a pep session. But there's and some specific yeah. techniques and oh, there's specific lots things of stuff. you can do. There's lots of stuff. Yeah. And, and so I wanted to talk, so I wrote in my blog about what that's all about. And then I started writing this book. And my publisher said, yeah, that'd be a great book. They wanted. They, they had thought about a book like that also, so we came to an agreement on, on a book. And uh, so that I just finished writing the book just a couple months ago and now we're in the editing process and it'll be out sometime in December mm-hmm. uh, called Fast After 50. Great.
0: In your research on aging, um, I know there's a, probably a lot of detail and we don't have time to go, go into that, but what I'm curious about is um, aging past the age of 50, is it different for men and for women? Um, and because of the differences in uh, testosterone in men and women, as well as estrogen, are there any advantages that uh, women may get before the age of 50 with what you've written about in the book?
1: There's actually quite a bit of similarity in, in the aging process between males and females. And what I wanted to explore was uh, how, uh, not how gender affected performance, but how age affected effect- it. <laughs> uh, modified performance, up, either up or down, because I've seen athletes go both directions. They start late in life and they become better athletes, but if somebody's been a long time athlete. That doesn't happen typically. There's a slowing down that goes on, and and the slowing process, from what I've found, is, is really similar between males and females.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, it comes down to three things basically, which are modified somewhat by by uh, hormones. Mm -hmm. Uh, Number one is a loss of VO2 max, aerobic capacity. Uh, That pretty much is seen across the board, male and female. Uh, With age, there's a drop in performance because of aerobic capacity declining. The question is, the issue is it's going to decline. Uh, You're not going to stop it. The question is, can you slow it down? Mm -hmm. That's the issue. And yes, you can. You can slow it down. which then brings us to the second issue which happens, because this is, this is related, which is muscle mass. There's a loss of muscle mass with aging. Uh, males tend to keep their muscle mass better than females. This is probably a hormonal issue. Uh, but um, both sides can do, both genders can do something about it. Uh, and I talk about that in the book. What, what is causing this? And I go into hormones there, which discuss the effect of hormone on mass, muscle mass. And uh, what's happening to hormones with aging, mm-hmm. which brings up a whole interesting topic about lifestyle, because it's not just, gosh, I wish I had more hormones, there are things you can do about it. Yeah. It's not like it's t- entirely outside of your control. There are dietary things that can be done about it. There are exercise things that can be done about it. Exercise being the issue that we're most concerned about with athletes at this, at this topic, is uh, more high intensity training. Uh, mm-hmm. Most athletes i found, male and female, tend to gravitate toward long, slow distance as they get older. And that becomes a continuing process. But by the time they're my age, what I find is almost all the older athletes, 70 years or older or so, simply go out and do long, slow distance workouts. Mm-hmm. And that's their focus. And But if you look back at where they were 20 years ago, that wasn't the only focus. They did high intensity also.
0: You're talking about where, where an individual athlete was 20 years ago. Exactly. they 30 versus... Take
1: John Smith, age 70 versus age 50, mm-hmm. and you can see differences. Look back at her training logs, you'll see differences, and the differences are primarily going to be found to be intensity. Yeah. More intensity doesn't mean absolutely more intensity. It just means more volume of intensity, whatever that intensity may be. They're not, not necessarily going as fast as possible can, but they're doing more intensity around their lactate thresholds or anaerobic thresholds mm-hmm. or above that. By age 70, that's gone. They're yeah. typically just doing long, slow distance. They uh-huh. go out and they to go their long run, their long bike, their long swim,
2: and they They're never get involved percent. in intensity. That
1: has an effect so on hormones. If you're going to just slow train slow all the time, you're going to give up the opportunity to have a hormonal increase, a flush, a flush of hormones uh-huh. that will begin to change your muscle mass. Mm-hmm. And, so, and, and, so, and, and that has a lot to do with sleep. because This mm-hmm. is when we get it mostly is during yeah. sleep. And I find too many athletes who give up on sleep. They decide they don't need as much sleep. <laughs> They're getting older. There's
0: so many other things to do. Yeah.
1: So there's so you know so they cut their, sh- their sleep short and they don't they don't give enough focus to sleep. Yeah. The sleep has a lot to do with the same topic. And so, you know, the book goes into how do you improve your sleeping yeah. to to get more quality and quantity of sleeping.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh To therefore have more hormones, therefore have more muscle mass, to therefore be able to have a higher VO2 max. So all these things begin to tie in again. It's it's lifestyle. It's not just
2: going out the door for
1: a run or a bike or a swim. It's lifestyle is what it is. If you change your lifestyle over time, you can expect to give up performance with time Mm -hmm. at a faster rate than if you maintain maintain the lifestyle of a young athlete.
0: Do you find that um, as athletes get older, are they more willing to change their lifestyle to maintain those... Uh, to prevent the decline, or are they less likely, less motivated? Uh,
1: They're less motivated. Uh, There are some who are highly motivated, but they can't because uh, they're runners, for example. This book is not written for any one particular sport. They're runners, and they tend to get injured very easily. And so that that runners have a unique problem when they're older athletes, more so than swimmers or cyclists. Runners have a greater incidence of injury, knees, and you name it, hips. Joints, especially, you know, they've got a lot of problems with joints. Arthritis is beginning to set in, and that's that's another issue which we won't go, I won't go into sure. now. But it's another issue about the lifestyle also, which it's not just like ordained you're going to have arthritis at a certain level. You've got some control over that too, and I think in our society we don't give enough impetus, enough emphasis to prevention of disease with aging. Mm-hmm. We want to give you a pill, yeah. to solve the problem, and that's not the solution. The solution is not to take a pill. The solution is to change your lifestyle so this doesn't happen to you when the same thing you see happening to your your father or your mother when they were aging people in the 70s or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. The same thing is going to happen to you if you live the same lifestyle, but it's not inevitable. You have control over it. your life. Your parents probably had no, no, no inclination to go out and swim, bike, and run or just run or just bike or whatever. They had no inclination to do that. They saw it as being a waste of their time and foolish and all kinds of stuff. That's not the athlete of today. But they've still got the notion that the pill is the solution.
2: Yeah.
1: Modern medicine figured out a way for me to resolve this problem by taking a pill or a potion.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and that's not the answer. The answer is lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Change your lifestyle. You can get me started an entire topic <laughs> on my favorite topic, so right. I won't go You're into gonna it. You're going to run out of time. Yes, that definitely. So I'll, can... I'll just stop right there. All right, so we'll buy the book,
0: right? <laughs> right. Or we can do another, if you want to do a, a podcast over phone or Skype, we could sort of continue the, the sure. topic if you want. Um, so last question. You could just wrap this up in, in one minute or five minutes. It's up to you. But you made a comment earlier, and I know there are people, coaches, and Ironman athletes listening to this that are dying to know the answer. You said Pete Jacobs trained perfectly for last year's yeah. Ironman. Could you just give us a few nuggets of wisdom
1: there? Yeah, let's just take one aspect of, of Ironman uh, performance. Uh, Ironman, as with all triathlons, are basically won or, won or lost on the bike. The bike is half the race. So if you get if you screw up half the race, you're not going to have a good, very good performance. Uh, Pete is very wise to that, so he devoted more than half his training to the bike,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which is what most the way most triathletes ought to look at this. So I need to devote a huge chunk of training to the bike. Beyond that, you have to decide, what, what is it about the bike that's important? What, what's the most critical aspect of performance on the bike? Well, what it comes down to primarily is something called intensity factor. And that, that brings us to power meters. You can't do it with a heart rate monitor. You can't do it with RPE. You can't do it with any other method. It has to be a power meter. You have to know what, what is the power I can generate for, in Pete's case, four and a half hours or better, that's going to lead me to have my best performance ever on the bike and be able to come off and run. Yep. Now, he could go faster on the bike. He could have gone 15 minutes faster
2: mm-hmm. if he
1: didn't have to run. But he has to run. That's the problem. So he, he figured that out. He's smart. Yeah. And this is something I don't find too many people have figured out, is what does that power have to be? Well, it's called intensity factors, a certain percentage of what's called your functional threshold power, which is how much power you can, you can average for an hour all out. So he figured that out, and he also knew that the winner of an Ironman race, the overall male winner, is going to do around four and a half hours, 4.20, something like that, and that's going to be an 80% intensity factor, 80% of his functional threshold power, or the power he can hold for one hour, max effort, he's going to ride at 80% of that.
0: And it has to get him to the finish line, or the the bike course in four and a half hours or less. Yes, and that
1: will, get him to, in his case, get him to the finish line in four and a half hours or less. So... He ties that together. Now all he's got to do is say, okay, how can I pace an 80% intensity factor to the finish line?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so he began to do workouts, training himself to ride at 80% plus or minus about 2 3%. Mm-hmm. Because there's a few times in there you have to surge in the pro race. You've got to pass people. Sure. And, when, and you can't be in a drafting situation, so you've got to surge to get past little, them. So you have to raise the intensity factor, and, and then you're going to bring them. it back down slowly. So, but it's always going to average 80%. So he trained to that. Mm-hmm. This is from two years ago. I think his last big workout he did was something like a like a 100-mile uh, time trial at 80% of intensity factor. Mm-hmm. That was his last hard workout. Yeah. A couple weeks before the race. And on race race day, what did he do? 80% intensity factor. So it's,
0: it's, there was no surprises on race day.
1: He was he was he had it nailed down. He yeah. got it perfect. And that's what most athletes have never figured out. Most coaches have never figured that out. It's, mm-hmm. such, a, it's such an easy way of looking at training for an Ironman distance race that yeah. it's almost it's almost like cheating to be able to do it. Because <laughs> the numbers are so easy to figure out. Right. If you just simply know what, what is my goal time and what is my FTP, functional yeah. threshold power, you can figure One. out how what percentage of threshold power you got to be riding at
0: mm-hmm. to get
1: that duration that's your goal time, and then you just ride to that time, ride right. to that power.
0: Now, and you also have to be able to do the run you want to do tapped onto the end of that. Exactly so right. So for 80% was right for, for Pete.
1: He could, have, he could have gone 85%. Mm-hmm. But had he gone 85%, he would have had a much worse run and would not have won the race. Yeah. Somebody would have caught him. So what I don't want to have
0: happen is someone listen to this podcast and say, i got to go 80% because that's what Pete exactly. Jacobs did. It's individual for every person.
1: It's tied to duration. As the duration of the race gets longer, mm-hmm. the intensity factor gets lower.
0: So if you're a slower rider, you know, if say you're a six-hour bike leg person, it might be seventy percent. It's going to be, yeah, it's
1: probably going to be in an around. For that case, it's probably going to be sixty-five to seventy percent, okay, it's going to be in that range. And uh, <laughs> I, there's a whole chart that's been designed around this there's a whole chart. Yeah. That tells you, you know, if your time, if your goal time is such and such, then this is what your intensity factor needs to be to yeah. come off and be able to run. Mm-hmm. And so, anyway, it's, it's...
0: More, more stuff we could talk about in uh, yeah. It. Podcast. Due to some technical issues with uh, mobile podcasting, the very last bit of our interview got cut off. But I really enjoyed that interview, and uh, would love to just sit down with Joe and and learn from him for as long as he was willing to teach. Um, he's genuinely excited for uh, education, um, interested in helping other people learn how to use their power meters how to best train for their sports. And uh, I think the thing that I appreciate most about Joe is his curiosity and how his curiosity for learning has led him to write so many books that have helped so many people. Um, So thanks again for joining us. And as always, the interview portion of our podcast is ad-free and uninterrupted. If you'd like to help support the podcast, we'd appreciate any help. You can give us on patreon.com slash try. That's T-R-I, the number two, listen you can join for as little as $1 a month. That would go a long way towards helping us with hosting, uh, transcription, and production fees. Um, Otherwise, we'd love to have you join us on Facebook, and we'd love to hear from you with any questions you have for any of our previous guests or suggestions on people we can interview. Tune in in about a month's time when I will have an updated interview with Joe. Um, I'm going to follow up on some of these questions raised during this interview, and we'll find out what else he's up to. And finally, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really goes a long way into helping other folks discover the podcast as well. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon.